Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well Show. I'm your host Joshua. I'm here with Kevin and we're doing something a little different this time. Um, we uh, just finished recording our Ian Mackay episode and uh, we're kind of decompressing from that and I thought uh, we would just chat for a bit before this one. What do you think, Kevin? I think it's a great idea. So couple of quick things. We did not do any kind of pitch at the end, so I just wanted to remind people that we're donating money to Hospitality House SF through the end of the year. If you give some money to our Patreon, that's where it will go. Uh, check them out at hospitalityhousesf.org. Um, and then... Oh, uh, you should say why we weren't able to do that. Because um, I was a little excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, we ended up talking for like... Like what? Forty five minutes. It just kept going. We like yeah. we, we ended the show and we were doing our normal like okay. Here's how the tech works. Like don't you can close your browser, whatever. Right. And then uh, and then he just started telling stories. Yeah, yeah. We stayed on the we stayed on the on the air with Ian after the interview, and I wish we would have recorded it. I know because it was fantastic. But you know what? It was also nice to get that like personal moment and talk about some things that maybe weren't necessarily for air you know right, right. Uh, so it was it was a it was a fantastic interview i've i've been a fan of of his music as long as i can remember yeah. and um it's and always it's, good good to tell people about stuff they can't listen to <laughs> and that isn't that isn't me being a uh you know oh, i guess what we got to do i just was like so overwhelmingly yeah. excited yeah. i didn't want i didn't want to hang up um so uh, it was a great interview, I thought, and he's uh, he's a he's just a really right on guy, and uh, yeah. it just was a lot of fun. Um, so I thought it was was um, powerful because you told me um, that your father just passed away right before we recorded this interview. Yes. So, so you're kind of on the heels of that, going into what I imagine for you was a very big personal interview for you like a big yeah, uh, yeah moment for you it was and my dad uh was one of those dads that came to see my bands play as much as he did not like the music that i was playing oh, wow. um and um he was you know he was a hell of a guy I actually posted his obituary on facebook for his friends and our family and other people and it's just the outpouring of love and support has been almost completely overwhelming like i i, I knew he was a good guy and i knew he had a lot of uh community but i had no idea like i i really like you you know people the way you know them and my dad and i were really close yeah we, we were close with each other like you, know, you knew him as your dad you didn't know him maybe as this guy <laughs> yeah. yeah so you know we've gotten a lot of my mom has gotten a lot of emails and and um a lot of letters a lot of flowers a lot of love and you know i uh, I, I just like i really i can't even like i i can't actually put into words how truly impactful it is right now especially with such little personal you know, connection face to face. Sure. Uh, it's been, it's been really nice. And, um, I think, uh, you know, so I'd like to also dedicate this episode to him cause I think he would have liked Ian. <laughs> I think they would have probably stayed on the phone longer than the three of us did uh, <laughs> telling stories to each other. And, you know, they, they definitely both have the gift of, of storytelling. So I, I just like, you know, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's just a lot to unpack when a, when a parent dies and, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't want to make light of it either. It's a very, very somber time for me, but you know, this is, this show 
working with you on this show and this episode, especially right now was really meaningful. And it, it kind of is one of the things that keeps me going. So, um, I just want to say to everybody that listens, thank you for listening to our show. It it really means a lot to me. And our interviews are very personal. Um, and we don't filter anything out, uh, unless specifically asked by a guest that we take something out, but that even I might point out when, when, when I put my foot in my mouth, I don't erase it. We don't erase it. And, um, so they're very personal and they're very, whatever is, you know, currently going on in the person's, you know, kind of stream of conscience. And it's, you know, it's a very different way, in my opinion, to do um, these kinds of interviews, because I know a lot of them are incredibly curated and, the you know, questions are sent beforehand. And, you know, so I, I just, I really love what we do. I think it's really honest. And, and um, you know, I, I appreciate everybody that listens. So Kevin, thanks so much for setting some context. But I think there's only one real question here. What's Did that? your dad prefer engage or siren? <laughs> I think he preferred- hate least. <laughs> I think he preferred siren um uh him and brian uh and joe Carr uh were very close so what? yeah yeah joe, dad joe was close with brian zero oh my god my dad loves brian loved him brian zero i love brian zero too he's definitely one of the weirdest guys i've ever met in my life i mean adored you know, my parents adore Brian. My mom went. My mom that. went to Miriam. Yeah, my mom went to to Miriam's memorial actually, and just hugged Brian. Would not let him oh, go. Geez. Yeah. So right. uh, yeah. So I think I think Siren is the is the sentimental favorite. Um, I don't think they understood any of it. <laughs> um, and we certainly argued over politics at that time. But I will say right. my one one thing I will give my dad a huge a huge prop for is uh, he went out his last Facebook page his fat last facebook book photo for his uh for his um you know whatever his timeline photo or whatever uh mm-hmm. profile photo has a black lives matter banner around it and jeez oh, yeah so i i apple tree all that stuff he's he was a he was you know lifelong lifelong liberal and was the most inclusive person i've ever met in my life that's fantastic man what a great way to start the show uh Thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, stay tuned for uh, Ian Mackay. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. I am your co-host, Joshua, and I am joined, as always, by... Your co-host, Kevin. And on the show in this episode, we have Ian Mackay. Uh, as most of you know, the founder of Discord Records and been in more bands than I can say in one breath. So, um, Ian, welcome. And thank you so much for doing this uh, relatively late on the East Coast for us. We, we really appreciate it. I'm super excited to have you on. Of course, no problem. I, I just want to clarify that uh, co-founder of Discord Records. Co-founder, yes. Yeah. Course. One of one of four people, really. Yeah, and that's uh, that actually is important because I know people, um, you know, all did a lot of work to get that going. So, um, you know, I, I we we briefly touched on uh, your new project before we started the show, but I, you know, I, I kind of want to just talk a little bit about you know the state of the world and um, and what it's like for you because when we chatted on the phone earlier, you were uh, there was a possibility of going doing some some stuff, some family stuff kind of how are you doing with things that are going on, having a kid, you know, all the stuff that's happening in the world right now. How is it in DC and, and uh, Virginia area? 
Well, I live in D.C. Um, yeah. and Discord House is in Arlington, which is just across the river. Um, I mean, I think I imagine it's, it's like most most of the world. It's you know, there's a pandemic. The weather is a little bit odd right now, um, but in general, my the way I think about things is that you know you just have to dress accordingly. So obviously. I don't have any control over. I don't have any control over the situation in terms of uh, the pandemic. Um, so I have to think. All right. Well, I just have to accept that it's occurring, and then try to figure out ways to navigate it so that um, I don't add to the problem. Really. So I don't. I don't. You know, it's it's a different life, but I feel pretty clear about things. It's just you know, just a different set of circumstances at this point, and. Yeah. Not to make light at all of anybody um, who has suffered um, uh, as a result of the illness or as a result of the economic, you know, problems that are, you know, have occurred and are sure to occur in the future. Um, but I, I, have to th- I have to say it's like a natural disaster. And um, when you think about it like that, you know, if it was a flood or a forest fire or an earthquake, you know, these things, um, who can stop them? So right. uh, you just, you just have to contend with them. And I guess that's what all I'm doing is contending with them. And I don't, you know, I mean, I have a, yes, I mean, we have a, Amy and I have a 12 year old son, but I think that, you know, we're, we're, um, we've been doing, doing pretty well. We've been hanging in there. And I think one thing, one interesting thing is that when the sort of quarantine stuff started, I think a lot of people were really um, felt at first, I think, were very challenged by the idea that they would be sort of in close quarters with the same people. But mm-hmm. as somebody who has toured and toured and toured and toured, <laughs> you know, this actually being in close quarters with the same people, you know, I'm kind of used to it. And then having to accept each day as it comes, that's my life. Right. So I, it's just, I, I, I actually I think that's a really interesting point because I've I've talked to a couple of friends about that and you know I I did some touring in my early twenties definitely not as extensively as you or as for many years but uh, you know I felt like that was like the training ground the biggest difference right now is this is kind of I'm not always positive that I toured with with people that I totally wanted to be with all the time but I chose the group that I'm with now. Like right. fully committed as an adult, this is who I want to spend my life with. So I think it's a really, really good point. What has it been like with Discord during this time? Because I know when I ordered the record, there was some delays with getting it out because of you all not wanting to con- conflict with your distributor who couldn't open because they're here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it, is it, I mean, and you're, you're very, I mean, to me, and, and maybe it's different for other people, but Discord has been always been a very, uh, you know, product sort of uh, driven record label. Like I love getting the actual record or in at one point CD and at one point before that record again, um, and actually having that tactile sort of thing. How how's it been for for you to kind of navigate that part of it? Did you really just skip over a cassette? Were you not a cassette kid? I was a cassette kid, but all right, you, you, know, you skipped right over that. I, I always had, a, I always had a had a had a an actual phonograph. So yeah, my, can I my, tell you, my dad we, was really into records, so I, that was kind of my thing. But when we I, put out, when we put out, um, I think it was Repeater. Repeater, 
sold something like 70,000 vinyl like in the first couple first year and 120,000 cassettes <laughs> it was insane cassettes were so huge right yeah. around 1990 1989 or 90 um it's bizarre like we sold so <laughs> many cassettes and then it was interesting because what i remember when basically what that represented was that kids all across the country and then other parts of the world but especially in the united states all got cassette players in their rooms For sure. For and sure. so that's what was selling cassettes. And then in the early, I say that by 94, I think Christmas 94, maybe every kid in America got a CD Walkman or something. Like they mm-hmm. got a CD player. Because mm-hmm. totally then, can I remember when we did, I think it was Red Medicine. We, um, this is Fugazi's Red Medicine record. There was a long, we always had these long discussions about trying to guess how much to press. And I think on. God. Kill Taker, which would have been the record before we'd sold, you know, a hundred, some 150,000 cassettes, but it didn't feel like we were going to sell that many cassettes with uh, Red Medicine. And so we really tried to be um, super conservative, guessing how many to press. And I think we pressed something like 40,000 or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember that it just didn't sell. And at some point we had something like, 30,000 cassettes sitting in a warehouse. And I mean, I've asked this, um, I've asked this, uh, this question to people before, but what, what do you call a record or a cassette that you don't listen to? What's another name for it? You mean that you never listen to it just sits around? Yeah. Never gets listened to. I mean, it's just uh, it's just like nostalgic crap at that point. <laughs> right, the piece of fucking trash. It really yeah. And so when we press rec, when we press records, you know what we really are thinking about when we when we set pressings is that we realize that what activates these pieces of plastic, whether they're CDs or vinyl or cassettes or whatever. What makes them into something that has some power or some actual resonance is someone listening to it. Mm, So anything that you make that no one listens to, you're just adding to this enormous pile of garbage that already exists in the world. And so we've always tried to be very, very thoughtful about how many things to make. We don't want to make trash, period. Um, It's, you know, again, like it's, it's only magical if, if someone's listening to it. Was that uh, really part of the thought process at that time? Absolutely. That's wow. amazing. So so we are faced with these 30,000-some cassettes sitting in a warehouse. And I had been approached by uh, some people in Poland um, who really wanted to reissue some of our records on – they wanted to reissue the record on cassette. And also some people in um, – china who were talking about it so we worked it out to sell them the cassettes we'd already had for you know 50 cents which would have been cheaper than what they would have been able to make them but it was more than we had paid for them you know so so that worked out but it was really the just seeing the bottom drop out on the cassette market was (laughs) profound and cds just obliterated everything for a while um and then of course now you know digital has obliterated everything um and well, even that, though people I, talk about the vinyl renaissance, really, the vinyl renaissance, it's a pretty modest renaissance. I mean, if mm-hmm. we sell, I mean, I think right now the Cricky record is sold 
six or seven thousand copies vinyl, which is for our purposes great. Mm-hmm. But you know, but when you think about the fact that you know, repeater sold something like two hundred fifty thousand copies, it's it kind of gives you a sense of the uh, disparity between the actual physical item. Now, I'm not uh, I'm not actually a formatist. Like I don't right. whatever I don't care. The music, every song I ever wrote, I wrote to be heard. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the point. So, well, well, I think that that's proof positive by the massive Fugazi digital catalog on your website, right? Well, that, I mean, well, that's yes. I mean, of course, but I mean, just in general, I think people. You know what's saying, funny about that, Ian? Uh, Larry Livermore, who we had on the show too, was talking about how it, he thought it was funny the way like modern punks will do like cassette tapes and like Kinko's flyers and stuff like that because he's just like that's just all we had. Like we weren't trying to be. Like, cool. Yeah, Yeah, right, right. (laughs) It was just contemporary media at the time. Right. Uh, It was, yeah, it was, that was, it was what we've referred to as the art of necessity. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I think that's a really good take. Has, has obviously then digital has has kind of changed how you all do things at the record label. Um, Uh, To some degree, sure. It's just a different, it's just another, another way. I mean, I prefer... I mean, what I like about um, physical products is I like the frame. Right. I like mm-hmm. having like here's the record, the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, it's funny with CDs when they came along. It took me a while to figure out what the flaw with CDs was as opposed to vinyl. Um, vinyl has two sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And usually they're fifteen to twenty minutes a side. So it's easy to sit down and really give a study to 15 or 20 minutes. Right. And then Mm -hmm. you can, next time you come and you put the second side on, you might listen to those, but CDs, you know, you could fit 70 minutes worth of music. And so everyone put 70 minutes worth of music on there and there was one side. And if I had been involved with the development of the CD player, I would have had two play buttons and the second Mm -hmm. play button would have found the middle point of the CD. Because what you found was that when you sequence an album, a vinyl record, you think a lot about the beginning, the first song, the second song for both sides. Like, what's the right. lead off song? But with a CD, it was just the first three songs. And then after <laughs> that, it was like whatever else. They just kind of threw stuff in there. And, just kind of fluffed it. Right. It just got, you know, yeah. and like, and they became, it's funny, like, especially like when you listen to a lot of the early hip hop records, you know, you have the, the hits up, up top, and then it was just like sixty-four minutes of of other stuff that was no one can remember, you know. Um, and I think that that it would it wears you out. Like an hour, just listening yeah. for an hour is hard. Um, yeah, for sure. I don't and, think that 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 also changes how like if I think about my favorite CDs, I only kind of know the first four or five songs. Like, right. Like. When I like all the vinyl true. records, I know the whole thing because I'd flip them and everything. But my first CDs were, you know, like Elvis Costello's Spike and They Might Be Giants Flood. And it's like, yeah, the first five songs on both. Right. And that's, and it's really, it was a really interesting um, development. Something that I didn't think about till later because when CDs first came along as Discord, we were thinking, well, we can take advantage of this format by putting two records on each CD because they were 70 minutes long. Some of the records were, you know, so we were able to put, say with Dag Nasty, we put the first record, can I say, and wig out both on the same record. Right. Um, we did that with a number we call the maxi CDs. We'd charge a dollar or more for them or something like that. 
Um, in retrospect, it was, I think, a disservice to the individual albums. Right. Um, but at the time, we were really thinking about it as like, well, how can we take advantage of this boutique um, format? How can you? How can we take advantage of it to actually offer some like economy to the? Um, but it, 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 in retrospect, I think it was a mistake, and we did try to actually. You know, we reissued a lot of that stuff as separate CDs back when people bought CDs. Now with digital, there's just no frame at all, and right. that's really it's really interesting because for those of us who make records. Like we really think about the sequence, like the Kariki record, we really thought about the sequence. Fugazi, we spent forever thinking about the sequence, like how the arc of the record, you know, and um, which I, as an aside, I thought I'd, I'd bring this up, which I always thought was very interesting as well, which is, do you remember there was a series of um, bands would get back together and they would do these shows where they would play just this, their most famous record. One record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. one record. Just Bill did that with right. uh, so, Perfect No Ones. Yeah. So, so, and I mean, a number of bands that did it. I saw Devo do it yep. with, uh, Devo did it. That's right. Awesome. And so, and it was cool, but there, I was watching and I go, this is so interesting because when you think about the arc of a record, like you have side A and side B, and the first, the strong song usually is, you know, the first couple songs on side A, or you know, and then the first couple songs on side B. The last song on side B is usually sort of like the like, yeah, oh yeah, here's another song. But at a show, the last song is the encore. It's supposed to sort, you know, quite right. t- typically. So when when I was watching that show, they played the songs in order, and I thought it's just weird. Because you know what the but, encore is going to be, right? No, but it, but now you know it. But it's just not the. It's like a toss. It's, just, it's like a, it's like an extra, like a song. It wasn't. <laughs> it was a song that I didn't really expect anyone to hear. Right. But but they That's sort really of. Funny. And it's really totally interesting. Like what happened? Like what if he flipped the order when you did? If he did live album <laughs> concerts, he just did it like you, flipped. You, yeah, you could do. You could, I mean, I imagine people did that. I only saw one or two of them. I saw. Yeah. The Devo one. I have to say, the Devo one was here in D.C. and it was incredible they did um the first record i think oh. yeah it must have been the first record and yeah. it was great but it did have this weird ending the last song was just the last song on side b but they came out and did an encore of um some of their other like you know whip it or i don't know what some songs that were more like hits more popular yeah right and then they left the stage and the show had only been on for like 50 minutes because a record is only 38 minutes long right mm-hmm. And yeah. the people, I mean, I didn't pay to get in, but the sh- tickets were like 50 bucks or 60 yeah. bucks, whatever they were. So people were justifiably and understandably not happy. Yeah. Right. And there were more, more, more. And they started chanting more, more, more. And the lights went on and the crowd started chanting bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, this is incredible. Like what yeah. a scene, you know? And then the Devo guys came back on stage in their street clothes and they did um, "Beautiful World," oh. and Bougie Boy sang it. Um, and, Amazing. And I yeah. talked to one of the guys who was working with them, and I said, "Do they do this every night?" And he says, "I don't know. If they've ever done a show in their street clothes." But they—I think they thought the show yeah. was over. And I have to say, it was an incredible moment. Yeah. They they brought it so. And I actually, it's a band, that's one of the bands, like early on and late, I mean, I started seeing gigs in 79 and I could have seen Devo, but they were at that time, like we were being always ridiculed. 
Right. People would call us Devo. So we just thought like they were this terrible new wave band. And it's one of the bands that I really regret not seeing at that time. Yeah. I, did, I did B-52s early on. I saw them right after the Yellow Record. And wow. that was an incredible show. Yeah. Amazing show. Um, but I didn't go see Devo. And I wouldn't have gone to see – I didn't see B-52s the next time because at that point, you know, we were tired of being called Rock Lobster. So it was sort of like <laughs> – but in retrospect, I really, really wish I had gone to see Devo because I, I think that they were um, much more, um, yeah, they, there was something They're going on there. Incredible, much band. more serious. I, yeah, I saw them at a little place um, called the Katati Cabaret <laughs> uh, um, when I was seventeen. It was an eighteen and over show, and my my little brother, sixteen at the time, talked us in at the door wow. because he was just such a huge fan at that time. I mean, he was like obsessed with them. What town totally. was this? Uh, Katati, right outside of Santa Rosa, just north of Petaluma <laughs> oh, okay. area. You're yeah, up that so, way, all right. Yeah, I grew up in Santa Rosa. So, oh, in fact, yeah. I saw Fugazi at uh, at the Phoenix Theater. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. remember the Phoenix Theater. Amongst some other shows around that time. But. Santa Rosa, keeping it real. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that is right. Santa Rosa. Um, and we had, you know, we 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 definitely took a lot of uh, a lot of sort of lines out of the the discord playbook in terms of like putting out records i had a little record label we only put out stuff from our local bands and it was it was fun it was a fun time i'm not what gonna lie label, what was your label called well i had i worked with curb dog who did um like a bunch of like they did some victims family stuff and then they uh-huh. did band, a bunch of bands that ended up on um lookout records were on their label like um, who uh nuisance uh-huh one yeah. man running yeah. um you know uh, there was there was there was a few bands that that and then I was in a band called Siren up there, um, mm-hmm. so we and we Brian uh, our singer wrote for Maximum Rock and Roll at the time. So um, Brian who Brian Zero, oh, I remember the name. Yeah, yeah, he did that. He did the whole uh, article with Steve Albini about uh, corporate uh, invasion of of the punk scene. Right, um, that, that right. big that big yeah. uh, that big issue. Uh, some of your friends are already this fucked. Yeah, so, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, so you know we had I you know we had a great little scene up there. Phoenix was a great place to play. We had a couple of local little cafes that would let us do shows, and you know actually I think I booked a, a Discord band called Los Morditas to play at our studio. Yeah, yeah, it was sort of Discord related. It was Doug and and Chris yeah. and those guys. Yeah, they're a great band. Yeah, I, mean, I think Santa Rosa had its own real unique. Like it was cool. Like that the thing about I mean California is such a peculiar state because it really is like people i think largely think of sort of monolithically they think of california but it is such a a textured and wide variety of places Mm -hmm. you know from south to north i mean and fugazi played we played a lot you know we played you know we played chico we played up in wairica we you know we did arcada yeah, we did Arcada. We know the, you at the Armory. Oh, yeah. the Armory that show. Yeah, I went to that show. Yeah, what a mess that was. But the yeah, uh, that was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, but a, I think I think I might have even gone from with Chris from Lookout to that show. Wait, what happened? Yeah. Can you tell one story? Like, why was that show a mess? Oh, it was just in an armory, and it sounded terrible. And it the didn't kid sound up there good at all. Yeah, it was just a big giant hangar, and the and Northern California punk kids at that time they were they're they're pretty. There's some sketchy kids up there. It was just. There's mm-hmm. just sketchy kids everywhere, but Northern California had a really <laughs> specific kind of sketchiness, you know. I think that you know, it just it was it was very it was an interesting time. I mean, those yeah, shows, I mean, those shows, you know, we would play basically anywhere. I think we took a, or I took a page out of um, the Black Flag playbook, which was, um, 
you know, they would, Black Flag would go out and do a, a loop around the country mm-hmm. and then they would, you know, wash their clothes and get back in the van and do another loop, but play the next town over. So right. would, instead oh, wow. of playing Washington, they play Baltimore. Instead of playing, you know, uh, New York, they play Albany or, you know, whatever. They'd say like they would mm-hmm. just play. And as a result, first off, it was really, in, it was, in, it was like a good inspiration in terms of coverage, but also um, it just meant that it, it, you know, they had numbers for people, mm-hmm. um, but also it kind of planted seeds. I mean, I have this, you know, um, I have a, I'm, and it may not be true. I talked actually not so long ago. I spoke to Joey Shithead about this, but I have a sort of a theory about the way the American punk um, touring network developed, which was that in the very beginning, um, you know, of course, the club scene was largely controlled by the industry. So, mm-hmm. so the punk bands that came over, like largely bands like, say, The Damned or even you know the Sex Pistols, they were coming through sort of major label stuff and they were having regular agencies and stuff like that. So they're playing kind of traditional venues. Um, so they would play New York and LA or they play New York, LA and San Francisco, or maybe they come to Washington if they want to do a warm up a gig or something, but it was mm-hmm. very limited in their right. touring. The first band that really started to carve out a, um, a really unique kind of, uh, network was doa from vancouver and Mm. i think they were just driven i mean obviously an incredible band but just great live band yeah just they just wanted to play and they were working with a couple of guys um uh and i don't i can't remember which one maybe it was Lori mercer i don't remember which one there was a couple of different people they worked with but one of them or both of them were were had been had some connection with the um revolutionary workers party which was a sort of communist um revolutionary communist workers party um right. and they and the yippies essentially like people involved with the yippie movement in the, yeah. in the early 70s late 60s early 70s and so they toured and they their places they played were largely these weird um, kind of radical spaces. So DOA played in Washington, D.C. Uh, in October of 1979 at a, a hippie kind of co-op place called Madam's Oregon. Um, it's one of my great, I don't know if you guys have regrets about missing shows, oh, yeah. but I, yeah, I was sure. sick that night. I was sick Ugh. and I just couldn't go to the show. And it was to this day, it's like I have a cassette of the show. And I've listened to it so many times, and it's like one of the shows that I can't believe I didn't wasn't there for it. Um, but the fact that they came just blew us all away. That they came to Washington, and yeah. then Black Flag. You know, they also come from this strong ethic of playing, but they were largely limited to the West Coast. But they made their way up to Vancouver. I think DOA actually came to Cal- to Los Angeles, and they and. Dukowski and the other Black Flag people met them and they said, you should come to Vancouver. So they went to the Black Flag Mason to Vancouver. And I think, and I've actually verified this with Chuck Dukowski, the bass player of Black Flag and the person Mm -hmm. who booked a lot of the shows. I said, you went up there with a blank notebook, didn't you? And he said, definitely. So he just took all the numbers he could get for all these weird places and started to use that as like his, the beginning of his network. So he went out and played, they Black Flag started touring in 1981. They made their first cross country tour, and they they came through and they had got and you know of course they were also everybody was calling each other. Like I had called, um, 
I had called SST um, just because we love Black Flag so much, and they had a phone number on an ad, and I just called them in 1980 and said, like, hi, we're from Washington, and we love your band. And we just became, you know, we started talking, and we talk on the phone regularly. I may have even helped them, like, told, suggested they could play a 930 club, whatever it was. But so we ended up having this kind of, it just developed. And then Dukowski this keeps booking black flag keep playing and then when meyer threats starts touring he just gives me a list of phone numbers right see that's insane to me because <laughs> by the time so i started going to shows in 92 i was a sophomore in high school but by the time i started so right around then i also started hitchhiking around and it didn't matter if you were hitchhiking or in a band like my first time out of santa rosa by myself i just had some phone numbers and some names that some punks had given me, my friends. Right. And I'm able to go to any town right. and call this number. And there's a punk house. There's shows. There's, I'm complete. It's, it, it was amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I th- and I think it still exists. By the way, it's just not yeah. phone numbers. It's email now addresses yeah, it's email. Yeah. People are still looking out. I think that yeah. you know people. I always punk will never die. It might be called something different, but this this sort of. The, the necessity for the underground that always exists because the overground exists, you know? Right. So it's still going on. And like, you know, you, you're talking about 92, I'm talking about 79, 80, 81. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just mm-hmm. of different variations. Um, you know, like there weren't, I mean, by 81, there were these punk houses, but they might've been dim- a little, a quite a little different than the ones you were going to. Like, mm-hmm. not this, I mean, I'm not saying, um, I mean, I'm sure they weren't the same houses, period. But I mean, but a slightly different. Um, they weren't like house shows. Like you're going to house shows, I imagine, mm-hmm. to some degree. Yeah, yeah. basement Whereas, shows. Right, but we were like in every town there was a house where the punks lived, and that's where you stayed. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. That's where you would stay. So, and yeah. I, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think Discord House is the sole remaining part of that network. Like the actual, mm. like it's still there. The the building is there, and it's still basically the same. It's still Discord House. Um, it's you know we've I you know we've I've had it. It'll be thirty nine years in October. Um, and uh, right, it's crazy. Um, and I don't think I mean some of the other structures might be there, but there's somebody else living, some family in there. I think this, and I think you know, it's you know it's a fucking cultural artifact at this point. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a part of something. It's an invisible history, and, well, and I, I've I've read like just like blog posts, random people that have called you guys or you and come out and just done a like visit. That you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. well, I think there was a period, <laughs> a period of time where I think we must have been on some weird, you know, tour photo. Like everybody had to come get their picture on the porch or something. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It's true because I kept seeing that. So my funny. friends would do that too. Like I don't know what it was, but I've seen those. Re- reenact the iconic photo of you guys, yeah. right? Yeah. But what's yeah. interesting? What's interesting now, by the way, just you know, yeah. is that I haven't had a single porch photo taken since February. Hmm. Well, right? Yeah, and that like, and it's really interesting. Like, you cannot imagine, like, on any given summer day. Usually, like I would say, it would some sometimes it could be people would show up every day just to take a picture on the porch. There would oh, be wow. times I would leave, I'd walk out the front door, and there would be a bunch of people sitting on my porch. Um, it's one of the Is reasons that okay? actually. 
It is okay. Um, I would I mean, say of all you know, the, the thousands of people that have come, there's been maybe one or two ne'er do wells. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good, bad. you know. And um, I will say though that one of the reasons, you know, I moved out of Discord House um, in 2003. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that I think I felt like I had to leave that house was that I had become a docent in my own house. Um, yeah. You know, people mm-hmm. would show up and I'd say, oh, yeah, well, here's this room. Here's the office. Here's where this happened. They're like, oh, my God, and that's the porch. And here's where we practice. And But also, it's sort of like, and here's where I shit. You know, it just felt weird. Like, it, was like, <laughs> right. it was my home, right? And I and to some degree, there was a, a sense that um, um, I, I felt like oh, maybe I need to – split this up, you know, cause I, I was, I've right. been living there at that point for 21 years or yeah. you know, 21 years. It was just time to not live there. I love the place. I still, you know, I own it. I go out there, you know, usually four days a week or five days a week and work. And, you know, it's a, it's a great spot, but I'm glad I don't live there anymore. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I could see where it would become almost like a, it would almost become like a, you know, like a sort of a, you're, you're like tied to it in a way if you're living there and working there and you've got people stopping by constantly. Right. And it gets yeah, it's, like, it's like working at uh, Jim Morrison's grave. <laughs> yeah. Uh, little, I don't know about that. I'm but. not sure about that, but um, I think what's more interesting about it is it is sort of, for me, it's, it was my home and yep. I didn't, it didn't feel weird. Like for instance, like where you live, you might leave something personal out on your table, for instance, or your desk, right. because it's your desk. You're not thinking that you're going to be giving tours to people, especially people who are maybe have an exaggerated interest in what you're up to. So they might look, survey the things on your desk and glean things, even if, you know, like maybe I had an experience many years ago um, where a guy, there was a, a Mormon guy a kid and he was a runaway and he'd shown up at our house. And this is many, many years ago. And, um, he was a nice, very nice kid. Uh, and he had left the church and he was pretty agonized about the whole situation. Um, and as I recall, one of the things that he was specifically upset about was that he was really in love with this, you know, young woman who was, but she was still in the church and, um, you know, they couldn't be together because you have to be in the, you know, they'd have to be married. He had to be, he'd have to return to the fold if they wanted to be married. Anyway, this was going on. And he, I think he actually left, came back. There's a couple of different times. And at some point he left for good. And, um, and I was, you know, I didn't have anything bad to say about the Mormon church. I just was trying to help him navigate. And mm-hmm. I get a package in the mail from him. And in there, it's a letter, and it says, when you're ready for the truth, read this. And he had sent a Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Which meant, right, he had gone back. And of course, you know, he had gone back to the fold, which is fine for him. Yep. But I don't really need to have the truth explained to me. Right? <laughs> I know what the fucking truth is for me. So right. I was like, huh. And I put it on my desk and thought about, I need to think about how I'm going to respond. I'm not going to know. So that's just right. my way. I did an interview at some point with somebody, a fanzine, they came by and they interviewed me. And when the issue came out, the interviewer said, Oh, he's a Mormon. Oh no. What? Because he saw the book of Mormon on my desk. Oh my God. And then that explained like my ethics or whatever in, in his mind. 
And so this is where you, you start realizing like it becomes a really delicate kind of um, situation when you, your personal life is all tied up with where people come to look. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you ever noticed, like if you look at, if you ever seen interviews with me on a video or in a movie or something, almost sure. always I'm sitting in the same place at discord yes. house. And, mm. then, and if you check it out, I sit in a neutral corner. There's yeah. nothing in the background except those windows, and you might see a car parked. You might see some leaves in the, out the window, but there's nothing behind me because I don't. I just realize that's the neutral corner where people can't try to figure out like what it is I'm reading or what right. you know, or right. whatever, right. whatever you know. So I, it just became my spot to do interviews. Plus, it's good light. Well, it's such an interesting perspective too, because I I know I'm not really sure that I would want anyone taking a snapshot of my my bedside table at any given time and see all that's what I'm funny, doing. Kevin. Because I just realized if I ever get interviewed for some reason, I'm going to leave the weirdest books out now. <laughs> you know, because who knows? Because I read a lot of different things about a lot of different things, and I'm a I'm an avid reader. I just you know, and I've actually read part of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> But right. I'm certainly not, not a I, Mormon. Right. There's no issue. That's the thing. There's no issue. It's mostly what how people is how they're interpreting things. It's their filters. That's all. Well, well, and I mean, in some ways, I guess you could see where it would line up. I mean, given the fact that they're like the the no the the no drugs or smoking or you know drinking, like they would be. Oh, of course, because people want to look for something that makes more sense to their brains, other than that's just your ethos, right? Like it, it's I such mean, a it's I don't such mean, a. Easy, I think it's beyond the. I mean, either, I it's just it's just the way I. It's just who yeah. I am. It's not that. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I think that. Um, yeah, I think there's a. I, I human beings like to connect the dots. They do. Yeah, and I'm not mad. Honestly, I'm not even mad. I'm happy. For, I mean, I hope I never heard from that guy again, the Mormon guy. Right I hope on. his life is good. Like I don't yeah. wish you, I don't wish you on anybody. I'm not even really mad at the interviewer. What I what I came away with was was this um, was a lesson about yeah. mm-hmm. how like I think you know I am I'm a thoughtful person about you know how I conduct my affairs and 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 it's, there are a lot of times where I make a decision about how to approach something which is really largely based on the idea that I don't want to spend a lot of time later on explaining it because right. it's a waste of time having to sit there and like, no, you misunderstood this. I mean, one thing I can't stand is when people float nonsense rumors, then I have to deal with. Right. It just drives me nuts um, because I have other things to do. I don't want to have to explain. No, you know, I, you know, no, I, I mean, I can't, even, I mean, I'm not going to make any examples right now, but there have been over the years, a number of hoaxes or things that was, yeah, then I have to like, people will call me and they're like, what happened or what's going on? I'm like, okay, here's the situation. And it's just ridiculous. I yeah. mean, I, I'll give you a good example. Actually, here's an example. Um, some years ago, um, a local, uh, the weekly paper here, uh, contacted uh, um, somebody at Discord and saying, hey, uh, we hear, so I've, maybe somebody did a blog thing about the fact that Urban Outfitters are selling Meyer Threat shirts. And right. so the weekly, because they're so starved for stories, um, I guess, you know, do you have to, you know, you have the content, the content, damn it. Um, they called and they said, is this true? Can we verify this? And I mean, it, it was true, 
but it had been they had been in had been the minor threat shirts had been selling in out, urban outfitters for I don't know how long because I don't care. It's not I don't like basically the way it works is that each band decides for itself how they want to proceed and turn to merchandise. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Fugazi, we do not make merchandise. In the case of Meyer Thread, it's a democracy. I was outvoted. So fair enough. I don't have any problem with it. And there was a company that made these T-shirts, and they sell the shirts to whoever they sell them to. It doesn't matter to me because I think shirts are – I think they're ridiculous anyway. You know, <laughs> like I don't wear band shirts. And I mean I think if a band makes some shirts and they want something to get them down the road, cool. I'm all for it. But if people are buying clothing as a status symbol – I find that not so interesting. Um, so this reporter kept calling, going like, well, can you verify? And then we just, I think I just wrote back. It's like, I told the guy, just tell him, you know, yes, whatever. And then they wanted to comment. And finally she, she called a couple of times and I just picked up the phone and called her, or she was texting or writing or whatever. So I called her and I said, I said to her, I don't care. Like, I just right. don't care about this. It's not important. I go, you know, um, I don't know why, like to me, I don't know why it's any, why it makes 